Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive of rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where the only hangovers are vulnerability hangovers. I mean, let's be honest. They're probably hybrid hangovers, <laughs> part vulnerability, part tequila. So grab your Don Julio and your oversized sunglasses and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez. And this week we're talking about toxic masculinity. This is a phrase we've heard more and more in the last few years. And I wanted to get a clear working definition of it to use today. And I was so surprised when I looked it up. It's listed in like every dictionary. It was in the Oxford English Dictionary in Merriam-Webster. It was even in Urban Dictionary. And it wasn't even them like fucking off and being satirical. They they gave a real definition. But here's what I found on a mental health site called Very Well Mind. I think this is an okay definition. There's probably, I think, a lot more that could go into it. But I thought it was pretty good. Toxic masculinity refers to the notion that some people's idea of manliness perpetuates domination, homophobia, and aggression. It goes on to list toughness, anti-femininity, and power, as in obtaining social and financial dominance as the core components of toxic masculinity. So this is a topic I've been wanting to cover for forever, and I absolutely can speak to the way I have personally experienced and been impacted by toxic masculinity, but I really wanted to get a man's perspective on it. So we're going to do things a little differently today. Instead of having a mental health professional on, I'm so happy to welcome award-winning filmmaker, writer, educator, and the host and creator of the Other Men Need Help podcast, Mark Bagan, to the show. Hi, Mark. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. And to get us started, let's chat a little bit about your astrology. I know you're not super familiar with your chart, but you do know that you're a cusp baby. And in fact, you just had a birthday. So happy birthday. <laughs> well, speaking of, you started this whole thing with hangovers. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> managing um, uh, a drinking hangover. I had the most incredible, this, I don't know what happened this birthday. People reached out to me in a way they hadn't in the last few years, like oh. very thank you for being alive sort of things where I'm like, whoa, I could have used this so much. This is great. Um, so I'm sort of like in a, in a hangover of all this good love that I got over the last two days. But um, we're recording this on the 23rd of January. I am a January 21st birthday. Um, when we talked initially, I told you I was a 
I was in the womb for 10 months. I don't know what that means in terms of anything related to astrology, maybe something psychologically, but let's, I'm, I would love to find out what you can tell me. Well, okay. First of all, I am so happy to hear that of all the hangovers, (laughs) you have a love hangover happening. That's fucking awesome. But in terms of your astrology, yeah, you know, what's so interesting about, um, this Capricorn Aquarius cusp that you're on. So, okay. Let me just kind of give you a little background. Both of those signs, Capricorn and Aquarius, your cusp, are ruled by Saturn. So every other border, if you will, in the zodiac marks a point where you move from one planetary ruler to another, right? So I'll just give an example. Like if you're in Leo, that's ruled by the sun, and then you move into Virgo, that's ruled by Mercury. Okay. So like totally different vibe. But Aquarius is co-ruled by both Saturn and Uranus and Capricorn is ruled solely by Saturn. So that cusp has a relationship that no other cusp has, right? Because they, they understand each other in a way that no other cusp does. So let's talk about Saturn. It's a very serious planet. It wants results. It wants discipline. It likes hard work and structure. It's very measured and it prefers working alone. When you combine that with Uranus, Uranus, which, you know, the ruler, co-ruler of Aquarius, it, that's the planet. It's, it's like um, it's the revolutionary, the great creator of change. And what's so interesting about these two coming together is that Saturn likes tradition and staying the course. But Uranus likes to think outside the box and sort of be a rebel. So when you combine those powers, you get the dedication and commitment and earnestness of Saturn, but the innovation and individuality and sort of outside the boxness of Uranus. And I'm curious, does that resonate for you in your life? Do you feel those energies kind of come together for you? Well, I'm not sure my response is that sounds very flattering and I'm not sure whether I find that flattering because it is like sort of a a flattering kind of characteristic of somebody to be or because I do inhabit those things. I feel seen. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot there's a number of elements in that that feel very, very true. And um, I I don't know, I, I there's a there's definitely a part of me that that sort of fights a traditionalist nature, but um, I don't know. There, there are parts of me too that I think could be very. I don't know. I, I keep going back to the word traditional, but yeah, I I do like to think outside the box, and um, I, I I don't know how much more I can say without it sounding like too much hubris. But <laughs> responding and hearing that, I was I was smiling. It's a flattering a flattering read. Good. Yay. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. And I, I will say that I do see that in you and in the work that you do. So, so hubris aside, I, I, I think it's absolutely true. Well, I will take it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm going to jump into my experience with toxic masculinity. While I do that, feel free to interject with thoughts, feelings, recipes, you know, any good recipes you're into, (laughs) or you can just hang out, relax, do a foot bath. Either way, I'll turn things over to you when I'm done so we can hear about your experience. How does that sound? That sounds great. Cool. Okay, sweet. Here we go. So I'll just say, obviously, 
I didn't know growing up in the 80s what toxic masculinity was. Obviously, no one was using that language then. And it's not like my mom was like pulling us aside to preach about the patriarchy or anything. But I had a real sense of it early on in my life. My dad was mean and and scary. I can't really think of more afterwards. Or I should say I was very scared of him. He wasn't physically violent with us. Although he did spank us a couple times, but mostly he was just a mean dad. And part of that was um, just like a total lack of warmth. He was verbally violent and um, he would have like these really unpredictable rage meltdowns. And he was emotionally cold with his kids. The strange thing is that I grew up thinking of my dad as very progressive. And in a lot of ways he was right. He was and is a musician. He was and is very anti-police. He loved to cook. He was critical of homophobia. He wrote poetry, right? Like all of these things that sort of push against our typical ideas around what toxic masculinity might look like. But with his kids in particular, his attitude was, you respect me regardless of how I behave. I demand that, but you do not get respect in return. So in addition to having unpredictable rage, which meant, you know, he could explode at any second. And if you made a mistake, like you broke something or played, you were playing too loud, right? Or whatever. Holy shit. You know, you better watch out. In addition to all that, he was also very adamant that we had to answer him with yes, sir, or no, sir. If we said, yeah, it was like straight to bummer town. And we definitely were not allowed to question him or his decisions in any way. We weren't even really allowed to make jokes with him. Right. Like he would shut that down really quick. So in other words, he was just kind of this like militant, uh, scary dad. But meanwhile, he paid exactly zero dollars and zero cents in child support to my mom, but always had money for drugs and booze. He partied all the time. He was very much a womanizer. He could never keep it together to have a car. He would go on binges and not come home for days at a time when we would stay with him during the summers. In other words, he parented us with an iron fist and he insisted that we respect him in these very rigid ways, but he wasn't doing anything to earn our respect. And all the while he was overtly disrespecting us. And this is such a real aspect to toxic masculinity. This is that power dominance. And that behavior really taught me early on in my life that when a problem arose between me and a man, it was my fault. It was about me. I was sort of abused out of holding my dad accountable. And that became a reflex for me so that when I became an adult, if a guy's behavior was fucked in some way, my story became, this is about me. I did something wrong. So here's an example of that. And another great example of toxic masculinity, but actually with a gay man, which I only bring up because I do want to call attention to the fact that you don't have to be a straight cis dude to exhibit toxic masculinity. In fact, you don't even have to be a dude at all, right? Because masculinity is an energy and any of us can take on its traits, toxic or otherwise. Anyway, back to my story. I was collaborating on a project with a man who was gay. Let's call him Todd. And we brought in a third person to help us with a part of the project. Let's call this person Pat. And while the three of us were working together, Todd made a fat phobic comment. Well, I knew that Pat had had an eating disorder and was really active in the body positivity community. 
And so I reached out to Pat after the fact to see if they were feeling okay about what Todd had said, thinking, you know, maybe I'm projecting, maybe I'm making this up, but if I'm not, you know, Pat will let me know and we can all sit down, the three of us, and have a conversation, find a resolution. Well, sure enough, Pat was really unhappy about what Todd had said and was also not feeling great about partnering with us in our project as a result of the comment. So I went back to Todd and let him know, explain the situation. And Todd told me that I had gone behind his back without his permission or approval, that I was toxic, that I was the problem, and that he was going to take over the project and kick me out of it completely. And I remember telling my therapist when this was all happening that I just needed to learn to have a thicker skin, that I should be able to take that kind of feedback without crying and feeling upset, which is, of course, what I did. I had a, you know, complete fucking meltdown. I also kept saying to her over and over again, I really should have gone to him first. I really fucked up. I made this huge mistake. And my therapist was like, what the hell? I mean, my poor therapist, but, but I was so easily convinced that I was the problem and that he was faultless in the situation. And when I look back on this, it's really clear to me that I was primed to feel that way through my relationship with my dad. My dad could have whatever, you know, chaotic, irresponsible, underhanded, mean behavior he wanted, but as he saw it, he had every right to demand respect from us while he disrespected us. So what's interesting about this all kind of coming together for me is that recently I was reading about people who grew up in households where they weren't allowed to express anger, which was definitely my household. You are not with either of my parents allowed to be mad <laughs> right at the adults. And, and this thing I was reading talks about how those people, once they become adults, often will turn their anger in on themselves and get really mean or critical of themselves instead of turning that anger toward the people who are violating them because that rage has to go somewhere, right? And since those people were never allowed to express it outwardly growing up, they express it inwardly. And in this discussion of toxic masculinity in the story, I think, is such a great example of how that can play out in adulthood, what that can look like, right? Because another aspect of toxic masculinity is that need to be right, to compete for status through always being right. And always being right means not taking accountability. So if you fuck up at some point, which we all will, the easiest route is to turn around and make someone else the problem instead of owning up to a mistake. Which reminds me of this story. I think it was BP, although it might have been Exxon. I can't remember. But anyway, some, you know, huge oil conglomerate. And what happened was a report came out that revealed that this company was responsible for like the overwhelming majority of humanity's carbon footprint. And what they did, instead of being like, oh, you know, we should start investing in solar energy or electric cars or whatever, you know. They started a campaign where they encouraged people, like people like you and me, to track their own individual carbon footprint and see how they individually were contributing to global warming. Like they just totally shifted the focus in a way that positioned them as being part of the solution and very sneakily made individuals the problem so that they wouldn't have to take responsibility for the fact that their greed and need for financial dominance is literally melting the earth. 
which is like peak toxic masculinity, right? Like free market capitalism is toxic masculinity at its finest. Anyway, I wanted to bring lack of accountability in because that's such a huge piece of my story with my dad. But the other piece that I think is also really important in this story, both with my dad and with Todd, is lack of accountability plus using fear and threats as a motivator. That's part of the aggression aspect of toxic masculinity. With my dad, everything was fear-based. If we messed up or didn't show him respect in exactly the right way or didn't anticipate something that he wanted, we were in trouble. There'd be lots of screaming and, you know, on our end, lots of crying. With Todd, it was the same thing, right? This threat to take the whole project from me, which I think was also about dominating and putting me in my place using fear tactics. There's another dynamic in this conversation around toxic masculinity that I wanted to bring up because it super impacted me. And that's hyper independence. I had an experience years ago when I was in grad school. I was seeing an acupuncturist at the time because I'd suddenly erupted in really bad acne and Western doctors weren't really helping. They were just, you know, handing me off antibiotics. Anyway, I was seeing this acupuncturist and I was also simultaneously and very much as a result of, you know, this terrible cystic acne that I suddenly had in my twenties. And also of course, because hashtag childhood, I was super depressed and anxious and a total emotional wreck. And part of what that looked like was um, really bad chronic insomnia. I just couldn't sleep. I would wake up in a panic and end up getting like four hours of sleep a night, every night. And the guy I was hanging out with at the time was like, why don't you talk to your acupuncturist about it and see if he has something he can do, something he can give you? And my response was, my insomnia is not his problem. That's my issue. I just have to figure it out. Which is such a weird response to be like, I don't want to burden my doctor with this physical health issue I'm having. But there was such a deep sense that my insomnia was a result of my depression and no one should have to be burdened with my depression, even my doctor, even my friends. I wasn't telling hardly anyone that I was struggling. Two people knew, you know, that was it. And actually that number is more like one and a half because my sister only sort of knew, but none of my friends knew no one else in my family, no one I was in school with knew that I was having suicidal ideation just about every day. So that's one example Fast forward a few years, I'd finally found a doctor who realized I had parasites and she put me on this crazy diet. And within two weeks, after two years of having really bad, painful acne, my skin completely cleared up. But the deal was I had to stay on this crazy diet. If I ate even a tiny bit of sugar or wheat or rice or corn, the list goes on and on, my body would flip out. And to be on a diet like that, is really expensive and I was broke. So I started shoplifting because I was terrified of relapsing into the depression I had gone through. The idea of going back to that place, I just, I couldn't bear it. I, I couldn't bear the thought of getting depressed like that again. So I was shoplifting and I got busted. It's all a very long story that I won't go into, but my step family got involved. My dad's longtime girlfriend and her family and I remember her mom asked me, why didn't you come to us and ask for money? And it was wild. I had never thought of that. Even after I'd been caught, 
even after the cops showed up, even after I had a court date, all of it, never once did I have the thought I should have asked my family for financial support in this situation. The moment she said those words to me, why didn't you ask us for money? Was the first moment it had ever occurred to me that that was an option. I have a lot of ideas about how I ended up in that place, but it's no mystery right? That the United States is itself super into this particular aspect of toxic masculinity. It's why we have the whole pick yourself up by your own bootstraps nonsense. That's, you know, so pervasive, but my family also wasn't modeling interdependence to me. My mom was asking my dad for help. In fact, she was really pissed off about the child support stuff and, and, and he just wasn't helping her, which made her, I think pretty fiercely angry and, and quite bitter and, even more sort of hyper-independent, like, fuck you, I'll show you. My dad, though, he didn't have any trouble taking charity from others. And of course, there's that joke that certainly applies to him. What do you call a musician without a girlfriend homeless? But I think a lot of the handouts he got, he was able to charm out of people and, and maybe manipulate out of people too. He didn't really have to ask. But when it came to relying on others to help him through his emotional burdens or opening up to others about what he needed emotionally. That was a huge no. I think that's a core aspect of toxic masculinity, not asking people to help you in times of emotional distress. And then on top of it, my dad is Chicano. So there's that machismo on top of it, that cultural factor of men not showing emotions or asking for help. My dad was a partier. All of his friends loved him for being fun and funny and talented and smart, but he didn't have any, you know, real deep emotional bonds with people. Everything was very surfacey. If it wasn't a relationship based in music, it was a relationship based in partying, at least from what I saw, right? He wasn't out there talking to anyone about his feelings. And actually my mom didn't have any emotionally close relationships either, except for with us, her daughters. So I didn't know what it looked like to vulnerably open up to someone and say, I'm really struggling and I can't do this alone. And if I'm being honest, even now today, it's still something I struggle with. And for the most part, the only person I really conveyed anything close to that too, to that, that like, Hey, I need you. I can't do this alone is my therapist. Excuse me therapists because I have two <laughs> because I need two. Uh, but you know, my girlfriends and I will talk about feelings all day long, but when I'm in my darkest moments, I tend to retreat and isolate. I have been able to make this shift toward assuring that I have a therapist to go to when things get dark. I still struggle with this idea that it's okay to ask someone for help, but now I do make sure I have mental health professionals in my life so that if something comes up, which is always, I know I'm supported. The last thing I'll talk about in this conversation before I get into what healing has looked like is normalizing using people for sex. Of course, some people want to be used for sex and when it's consensual, you know, that's fine, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm essentially talking about objectification and as a straight cis woman, so much of my experience with men has involved feeling like I'm not a person to them. I'm just an opportunity for sex. 
this is so much bigger than my family, right? This is the culture we live in. It's the air we breathe. It's walking to your car with your keys between your fingers. It's Roe v. Wade being overturned. It's watching Dateline or any other true crime show and realizing women are the victims 95% of the time and almost always because they were raped first before being murdered or because their partner decided they wanted a new partner, a new family, which is grim, I know, but it's our reality. And Dateline gets pretty boring pretty quick once you realize it's almost always the husband or the boyfriend. It's a culture of objectification. It's much easier to use someone for sex if she's not a person. And I mean, I guess, I I don't know from experience, but I guess it's easier to rape and murder someone who you don't view as a real person. I always roll my eyes when someone brings up the free love movement from the 60s. I'm just like, some fucking sleazy fuck boy just rebranded to make it seem spiritual to fuck literally everyone in sight. It's not spirituality. And again, you know, people who feel great about having casual sex with each other is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about coercing women through various methods, whether that's lying to them, manipulating them, convincing them of something that isn't true, harassing, threatening, assaulting, Harvey Weinsteining, whatever it looks like in order to get them into bed. I think a bigger part of that when you zoom out is that need for control. And again, domination. That's such a huge part of toxic masculinity. For me, I have felt so deeply dehumanized in my relationships with men. Men I deeply trusted have lied to me in order to sleep with me, as have men I didn't know very well. I would say that men who haven't been shady in my sexual experiences are the exceptions to the rule in my life. And of course, as many, if not most women have, I've also been sexually assaulted. But beyond what I've experienced dating I want to talk about what I see as toxic masculinity's relationship to sex. When you objectify people, you make sex cheap. Toxic masculinity's version of sex is cheap, which I'm not, you know, again, I'm not saying people should only be in love to have sex, but if you're objectifying someone, you don't respect them. And so it becomes okay to use them for sex by whatever means necessary. And the crazy thing is that I think that even feminism took on this aspect of toxic masculinity. In fact, the truth is that I think versions of feminism have taken on various aspects of toxic masculinity in an attempt to try to get women to rise in social status by playing the game that the patriarchy had already set up. For me, coming into feminism in the late 90s, Feminist sexuality was presented to me as sleep with whoever you want, rack up a big number, just focus on getting off and using men for sex because you're liberated. You're not afraid of being called a slut. And now you're going to use them. You're going to turn the tables on them, which for me, I wasn't concerned about the slut aspect, but with my anxious attachment style, it was all but impossible to treat sex with any level of nonchalance. And that made me feel like a subpar feminist. But I cringe so hard because I grew up in the 90s singing along to like Snoop with bullshit ass lyrics like it ain't no fun if the homies can't have none, meaning if I can't have sex with you and then pass you to my friend so that he can have sex with you, you aren't any fun. 
which is so manipulative and predatory and gross and being positioned as a party song, as fun, as totally not problematic. If you ever have a minute to Google those lyrics, the misogyny is just like so above and beyond. It really is wild the way that it's been made normal to treat women like they're just disposable fleshlights. And I mean, this isn't the only example, of course, and it's not just about hip hop, you know, Motley Crue doing girls, girls, girls. I mean, every generation of music, right? Every genre. But we don't really think about the fact that there aren't a ton of songs by women about using as many men as they can for sex because men's lives are meaningless and they ultimately don't matter as humans, right? We just accept it as normal that there are countless songs like this about women. So I wanted to bring that into the conversation because I know I personally have suffered tremendously from this phenomenon that when men look at me, not all men, by the way, but when a lot of men in my experience look at me, they can't really see me. Whether that's because of sexual assault or, for example, like the guy I, I'd hooked up with a couple times, this was years ago, we'd hooked up a couple times and he'd been really sweet and cool. And then I saw him out and he totally ignored me, like went out of his way to ignore me, egregiously ignored me. And when I texted him and was like, hey, that was really hurtful and I don't feel good about hanging out anymore. He responded by saying, sorry. I'm just cold like that. And then copied and pasted the entire lyrics to Ice Ice Baby in a text, which I get is, you know, absurd and dumb. But it really hurt my feelings to be treated with such callousness by someone I'd been intimate with and kind to. So yeah, I've been hurt. I've felt unsafe. And I felt incredible grief as a straight woman trying to find a man to partner with when over and over I get this messaging that I'm not a real person to them. And in a way, all of this does have roots in my family and my childhood. Beyond the fact that my dad was, um, you know, quite a womanizer. I remember when I was nine, I was swimming at my dad's friend's apartment building. My dad was sitting by the pool talking to his friend and I had gotten out of the water and was walking toward him to get my towel when I noticed he was giving me this very odd look. And when I got near him, he just looked at me dead on and said, that ass is going to be a real problem. I was nine. <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. But it was a very weird feeling for a couple of reasons. The biggest one being my dad didn't really take an interest in me, at least outwardly when I was growing up. It's not like he wanted to spend quality time or get to know my innermost thoughts or anything that made me feel like a real person to him. But then suddenly he became really interested in and weird about my body, almost like I was in trouble. And so I think even in my relationship with my dad, I felt this kind of objectification, not because he was at all interested in being sexual with me, but because he was very put off by my body potentially being being seen as sexual. And as I became a teenager, right, he continued to be very put off by my budding se sexuality, which he was not a fan of. It was sort of this weird reverse objectification, right? It was like, I don't care about you as a person, really, but you're not allowed to be sexual or have the body that you have. I care a lot about that, which is also right, like 
a big part of the toxic masculinity of the church, the militant enforcing of women's modesty, which still objectifies women and reduces them to their physical bodies just in this sort of opposite way. Okay. Let me shift gears and talk about what's been helpful for me in, in healing. When it came to being raised by this sort of machismo, mean, unaccountable, iron fist type of dad who used fear as a motivator, the trauma for me was one, being afraid of men. And two, that thing I talked about where I felt like I had to make myself the problem when men were being problematic. I couldn't hold them accountable. So I'll start with that one. The story I associated with that was there's something really wrong with me. I've talked about this before, especially in the episode on feeling like you're too much, but that feeling of being inherently flawed followed me for a very long time. And it still pops up sometimes, although I'm better now at keeping those spirals on the shorter end. But the thought was there's something really wrong with me. So I'm sure I fucked this up somehow. And if I could just figure out what I did wrong and apologize and try like crazy to fix myself, then I won't have to have a painful experience like this again. And by painful experience, I mean like I won't have to get cheated on again or have my project partner threaten to take my project away because he made an insensitive comment, right? Like that kind of thing. Because the root issue was my thinking and being sort of in a spiral on my own end, what really helped was getting a therapist to reflect back to me how she saw the scenario. So I remember my therapist at the time asking me, do you scream at Todd? And I was like, well, no. And she was like, do you ever scream at people at all and tell them that they're toxic? And I was like, well, no. And she was like, yeah, you don't need a thicker skin. No one wants to be screamed at. You're not bad because you don't like people screaming at you and threatening you. There's nothing wrong with you. The issue is that when someone uses aggression against you, you immediately go into a trauma response where you can't decipher what's true and what isn't because you're too triggered. You freeze and you fawn. So that's been key for me in my healing. By the way, uh, I have a whole episode on the fawning trauma response. If that's something that you think that you need help with, or you're not sure what that is, uh, you can go check that out. But that that's been key for me in my healing, right? Looking at how I show up when people come at me with aggression, realizing that I freeze, that I fawn, that I abandon myself in order to try to make peace as quickly as possible to try to make the scary situation go away and realizing that I have this response from childhood where I turn the criticism in on myself rather than set a boundary with the person involved because it was never safe to express boundaries or anger outwardly when I was a kid. Getting those reality checks from my therapist has been huge, along with boundary work, which has also been really important for me. I ended up telling Todd a couple weeks after that incident that I couldn't, I couldn't work with him anymore because I was kind of a nervous wreck. It was too hard on my nervous system. And I ended up starting my own project. And to this day, I'm so grateful that I did that. It totally changed my life. But when it comes to being afraid of men, that's still something I'm working on. One thing my therapist has me doing now, and this is such a, when I say it out loud, I just think it kind of sounds insane, but it's what we're doing, right? Okay. When I see men out in the world, instead of going into my knee jerk self-talk, which can sound like that guy's a douchebag or that, that guy's scary. That's a bad guy or whatever the story is that I sort of subconsciously go into 
now I'm supposed to actively, actively look at different men and say to myself, he might not be so bad. Not that I ignore red flags, but that I don't start off with a story that builds a wall between myself and the men that I meet in the world. So I'm working on that. And as always, I'll throw EMDR in there. If you have, you know, any traumatized belief about anything, including, but not limited to men are scary and bad. EMDR is such an incredible way to break down those traumatized thoughts and replace them with healthier thoughts. I talk about EMDR a lot, so I won't get into what it is, but talk to your therapist about it if you're interested. After I was assaulted most recently, I was able to change the belief that men don't love women. They just use them for sex, which was like, I was, I went into therapy being like, you will not talk me out. Like, this is just a fact. We were able through EMDR to change that to where I am now, which is like, yes, some men are very shitty, but some men really do love women, right? So if you have traumatized thoughts as a result of some aspect of toxic masculinity, especially if you were raised around it, I highly recommend that. When it comes to hyper-independence, like I said, I have two therapists now, one who's pretty much by the book and another who uses angels and meditation in her practice. So I don't ever try now to handle my shit on my own, but I'll share another win for me. The last time I had serious suicidal ideation, that was probably like four years ago or so, I was in between therapists. I didn't have a therapist at the time. So I Googled, what do you do when you're depressed? <laughs> and actually... It had a great list of things to do, one of which was tell someone you trust, which was really scary for me because when I get in that space, I just want to isolate. I don't want to be that vulnerable with anybody. But I texted my sister and I said, I'm having a depressive episode. I'm having suicidal thoughts, but I'm not a danger to myself right now. Google told me to tell someone I trust. So I'm telling you. And it was great. My sister was like, okay, thank you for telling me. I'm going to check on you throughout the day. And she did. She would send me pictures of her kids or pictures of the sunset. She put together a package of homemade cookies and sent them to me. It was a very cool experience because it taught me that I can share when I'm struggling with people and be treated with love without being made to feel like I'm a burden. Of course, not everyone is the right person to call on in those moments. I really want to name that. But I took that step of identifying who that person was for me that I could trust. And I was vulnerable with her. And it marked such a departure from my old hyper-independent behavior. So what about healing from toxic masculinity's impact on our culture of sex? That one is huge. And obviously, it's, it's kind of beyond me. I can't single-handedly fix a culture of misogyny and objectification. But what I did change was my view of what feminist sex is. What I realized was that truly feminist sex is getting in touch with what you need to feel good in a sexual connection, not just physically, but emotionally also, and then respecting those needs. For me, I have anxious attachment and I was out there trying to have super casual sex, basically treating myself like good luck to you and your massive and deeply painful abandonment wound not even intentionally, in fact, not even consciously, but I wasn't asking myself the question. I wasn't sitting myself down and being like, Remy, what do you need to feel happy and secure in a sexual scenario? Fuck what the culture says. Fuck what everyone else is doing. Fuck what these, you know, quote, quote unquote, sexually liberated feminists are saying, which by the way, I don't think they're wrong for them because it can look 
however it can look to as many people as, as there are in the world. But I wasn't getting clear on what I needed. I was just sort of soaking up what everyone else was saying. And part of what I need, I realized, is to not have sex with dudes who don't respect me and also dudes who don't respect sex as an inherently intimate and emotionally vulnerable act. It just is. It just is vulnerable to sleep with people. With my most recent sexual partner, I was very straightforward because he wasn't a super affectionate person and I didn't like how that felt. So I was like, okay, we don't have to fall in love here, but I either need to cuddle after sex or I need you to look me in the eyes and give me a genuine compliment. Your choice if you want to keep sleeping with me. And it was great. We figured out what would make both of us feel good emotionally. So honoring my emotional needs and the emotional needs of my partners as well is how I've started to work through that trauma and take that into my own hands. Okay, Mark, how's it going over there? It's good. I'm here. I'm listening. Thanks for sharing all that. And I'm, you know, I'm not a clinician, as you said, but I'm, I'm sorry for all of these, you know, all these pain points, all these things that happened over the years and uh, just absorbing what you said. Thank you for that. I am really excited to hear about your sort of experience with this. And I, when you and I were talking, one thing that I said was like, I, I think maybe because my dad was so emotionally removed, I grew up just longing to know what it was like, sort of feeling like men were other, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think in, in the same way that a lot of men feel like women are other, but I just felt like men were other in this way. And, and I, and I didn't know anything about the other. And so part of why I wanted to have this conversation with you was to like, maybe for, for myself, certainly, but I think for a lot of people who listen to the pod to just like melt that otherness barrier and get into what this has been like for you in particular. Well, it's interesting you use the word other because I, I didn't realize it's probably until later, but that's it's part of the genesis for this show. And I think just my own investigation in my life is that I quite often in my life have felt like I am maybe like masculinity is some Petri dish mm -hmm. or some uh, laboratory. And I, I've spent so much of my life with like my face pressed up against the glass going like, oh, is that how they do it? Um, I, I mean, just like anybody's personal story and personal biography, I, I'm sure there are markers that I could point to, but I think that like the broad strokes for me is I was youngest and mostly like, mostly like a matriarchal household. Mm -hmm. um, it was a blended family. Uh, my father was significantly older than my mother and we had you know, as my mom, my grandmother raised me, um, sisters raised me. I had just a lot of women in the house. And the men that were around were mad old. So it's like, like my dad was 51, 52 when he had me. So, I mean, you know, that's like in our culture, that's not old. But as a kid, like, dude, your dad's old. He was old. He was an older dad. And there's a certain sort of masculine presence to having an older dad. He died when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And the man who became sort of the second patriarch, 
my stepfather, um, I remember sort of talking in my head, like, mom, I never said this to my mom, but I was like, mom, when you start dating, bring home like a young bad boy. Like I want like a, like a cool dad in the house. I want somebody, and by cool, I just meant somebody who was like in their forties, you know, <laughs> that was like the starting point. And she brought home a dude that was even older than my dad was when he died. Oh, no. Um, so my, my, my mom ended up marrying my stepfather, Lauren, who is 70 years old and bittersweetly, sadly, he passed away this fall, but he was, he lived in my life for nearly 30 years. He died at the age of 90, uh, just a few weeks shy of his 98th birthday. Mm-hmm. And so my, my models in the home, and also my father wasn't around that much, but my, my models were, when they were around, were, were older, quieter men. And my father and as well as my stepfather, Lauren, just luck of the draw, were very tender. Uh, my father had a sort of like a cup, the back of your head embrace, as I call it. You know, I'd use the one I would go up to to get my good night hugs. And same thing with my, my stepfather, Lauren. And so these these all these elements like throughout high school, adolescence, even leading into adulthood, there's a bit of otherness there. And I say that not to say that I'm perfect or that I am outside of the elements of a patriarchal culture or that there are things in which I've I haven't done things to hook up with somebody I haven't you know I haven't done things for you know to maintain a sense of power or out of like a masculine insecurity but I think in terms of like my my home wasn't one the feelings were sort of in some ways they were allowed uh, but this element of like tenderness that I saw from men, it was so foreign to me going into high school and like not seeing that as much and like finding and um, and now as an adult going back and trying to turn back on those switches that I learned to turn off mm-hmm. when I was 14, 15, 16 years old. So otherness, I think, is a is a really important uh, sort of a, a, a really important label, and I, I think it, it's a multi-gender one for people that are interrogating their own masculinity, their own relationship with men. I've, through doing this show in particular, I've met so many men that listen. They go, "Oh man, you know, I've I played lacrosse for years and all this stuff. I feel just as othered as you do." I'm like, how's that? How's that the case? Hmm. But I think it's part of this system as well, in which we're sort of forced to hold this stuff inside um, until we open up about it and see that like a lot of us a lot of us are looking into that petri dish or laboratory window as well and this when you're talking about these insecurities can you elaborate on that what do those look like well i mean some of this stuff uh, and 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 forgive me for for pointing a little bit to to moments in the show but the show's a good blueprint because we pulled things from my life, other people's lives of like, these are everyday insecurities that we never talk about. So I can give you some examples that show up narratively there. Yes. There's a number of things most recently that didn't show up on the show, but the one that I've gotten, I'll say one of the episodes I've gotten the most, maybe the most feedback on, there's, there are two, but the one that was initially like, people were reaching out out of the blue was um, four, what are we at? 2023, so I think four, four-ish years ago, five years ago, my partner, who's now my fiance, um, we decided to move in together. 
we were at the time, she's in her 30s still, but we were both in our 30s. We were both had been, you know, had professional lives for over a decade. Um, and we uh, went to go see an apartment. And the person that was showing us the apartment said, oh, and, you know, for access, the next step for the, you know, possibly um, putting in a deposit, whatever it is, is we have to see proof of one year of income from each of you. And we ne- it needs to add up to at least $100,000, you know, all, all of your income together for one year. And my partner, Caitlin, just immediately said, like, oh, I, I can take care of that on my own. You know, I've got like my my salary alone. We're, we're covered, and she meant it not in a dismissive way, but like we're good, we're good. We'll we'll get that over to you soon. Now, Caitlin and I had never talked about our finances, and she said that, and I just it was like, um, I'm not a big roller coaster guy, but it was like being told you're getting on this roller coaster, and sort of like that same sort of gut feeling of like, no, 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 like. <laughs> I, what what just happened? I'm not doing this. So I sort of was like, I I had this feeling in my gut, like, how is that possible? I do not make nearly that much money. Mm. And it was immediately I got super cold. Um, she had no idea what happened, like for the rest of the day, like super cold. I turned off. Uh, we went to go get some breakfast afterwards. And she was talking about the apartment. And all my comments were just like power moves. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I don't think that looked good in that room. Mm. Like just stuff like that. And all these things were just status, 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 status moves on my side. And finally, luckily, during maybe it was during the breakfast or some point in the day, you know, whatever tools I've learned uh, at this point in my life, I was able to say to her, this is what happened. And this is why I'm feeling funky. And she's, you know, as as a good partner would, she talked about it. And also it's like she was not dismissive about it. But ultimately, Caitlin's not somebody who's like, oh, poor baby, poor baby. She's like, thank you for telling me this. We can talk about it. But also like in her own way, it's like, that's your deal. Like, I've never made you feel bad about your money. You know, I've never made you feel bad about any of these things. So I I reference that because it's a it's a pain point or it's like a, a, a an insecurity and a pain point from the last five or ten years of my life that was a big one that also has been a really really interesting example of the way other people are feeling about this because it was produced as an episode with my story other other men sharing their stories that I was able to get feedback and it was the one episode where from our second season where immediately the episode went out and I had people in my life and then other people who I don't know, just listeners getting in touch and people that identify as women, you know, saying, oh my God, you know, giving me sort of these soliloquies of like, I'm, and I'm, I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back, but saying like, thanks for doing this episode. Like, this is something I've wondered about my partner or about other men and blah, blah, blah. And here's my experience. Here's my experience. And then I would hear from men. And the text messages or emails or social media messages would be like, yo, dude, that's that's real. It would just be like like so succinct and punchy. But I knew they were trying to say the same thing that other people were trying to say. Again, it's that sort of restriction of um, 
of openness, uh, the restriction of vulnerability, and that restriction of like holding those insecurities closely, even even within the context of another man sort of opening up about this thing that's very real for not just men, for a lot of financial insecurity is so real for people. It's so, 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 um, so it, it's such a deep nerve. But I think in terms of the conversation you and I are having, it's a very, very, very patriarchal institution to like say, I'm going to take care of you. Um, and I think men, it's it's a situation in which, I mean, this is this is something that could be just a very a really long monologue right now. I think it's obvious to a lot of people. It's something that men hold as a as a personality trait of being able to provide and have money to um, not just display power, but but you know a sense of providing and all those things. Even for myself, like a pretty right. emotionally expressive, arguably pro- progressive guy, I've got the same toolkit. I've got the same toolkit that I was socialized with, uh, with a lot of my peers, and it's still stuff that I'm trying to get rid of. Can I ask, so behind this insecurity around finances is the belief like, if I can't provide, I won't be loved or I won't be wanted? Well, there there are two things. And there, the one truth, which I have to admit to, is a truth that happened in that moment, a truth that happened when... A high school girlfriend said her SA2 scores and it was higher than mine, which is truly like holding on to power. Like that is a truth that I have to admit to. That is a part of me where it's like I feel insecure because like I'm not feeling powerful right now. And it has nothing to do with providing. It's just like it's just ego. It's just masculine ego. It's like, how dare you be smarter than me is my impression. You know, how dare you make more money than me? And those those luckily over the years, those are the number one. It's a deep truth that I have to admit. But it's a deep truth that has sort of the coloring of that has faded over the years. Some of that's age. But again, it's sort of it's learning. It's getting better. It's all the things where it's like admit to that being a truth. And then let's let's diagnose it, Mark. Like, let's sit with that for a second. What is what is connected with that? The second thing in terms of what you asked is is true. I think there are just, there are the, the I think the problem with a lot of, what happens is we're, we're so siloed, I think. Uh, sort of men traditionally are, are, are uh, you know, we find these certain areas in which we create our identities. And so in speaking in terms of like finance and providing, that's one area. And when that is threatened, it it it's like it's like a root that we don't understand is being uprooted. Um, I find the same thing, and, and this may sound unrelated, but I find the same thing with the way men, you know, men sometimes talk about friendship circles or the ways in which I find very I I I, I find men talking in sort of coded ways about needing tenderness. And that sort of like these siloed spaces in which I make a joke about it in our third season, but it's a true joke that I really I've really thought about for years. There are like three spaces for men to go get a hug or to get touched or to get held culturally. I think for North American men, I can't speak for the rest of the world. And that is in sports arenas. That's at war or it's in jail. Um and I say jail mostly from like the mythology of like uh, the way we see it, like the Shawshank mythology. Uh, and I think even sort of like the ways that that in some ways prison and jail is uh, sort of mythologized in culture. It's not a place that any of us really want to end up with. But it is something in terms of like you still see a band of brothers um, 
sort of mythology uh, placed onto it. And um, I find the same thing, too, with the ways that we're siloed in terms of our identities. You know, some of that is sexual prowess, for sure. Some of that, obviously, I think for any human being is some, some degree of like vanity, you know, for men that may be height and, and weight and, and maybe a, a, a strong hairline and things like that. But I think there are other things, too. And, and one of the things that I, I, I would hope that we, we become more and more open about culturally and with, you know, the next generations that we're raising is this sense of like, what is what is financial insecurity? What is what is what is providing mean? What is like providing for self mean? What is what do we need to um, untangle with the ways that we've held this as like an identity marker? And I obviously there are sort of intersections of class and capitalism involved with that. But I think this is a pretty common, um, mostly international phenomenon uh, for for the way men and, and, and patriarchy uh, continues. So that's that's sort of like those are like the two ways in which if I were to sort of break down the insecurities again, number one being still a move a power move to maintain a sense of power and ego and the other sort of like deeper is it's an identity marker that feels threatened in a in a way in which we're sort of siloed and i'm not trying to make excuses i just think that's that those are some of the deeper truths yeah and i think that's so important and i appreciate you just being like yeah sometimes it's just power it's just like it's just the ego and i i feel like that's the the kind of truth that I don't hear being validated. And I think it's so important that we acknowledge that because if we don't acknowledge it, we can't heal that. We can't, we can't move on from that. No. The whole thing about hurt people, hurt people. It's like, that is true. And there's this other thing going on, right? There's this, right. This need for dominance that the definition kind of talked about. So, I'm actually really glad that you said that because otherwise, yeah, if we don't say it, we can't work with it. And so, I mean, have there been ways that you've worked with that, with that? Um, I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like you have worked with it, but I'm curious how, one, how did you move from like, oh, fuck her SAT scores are higher than mine. Fuck her till being like, yeah, that was shitty. You know, like, how do you, how do men kind of evolve out of that? Well, I, I, I've got a few things that I want to point to, and I also want to I want to talk about an uncomfortable truth, and it's a truth for me, where a lot of this came from women, and unfortunately, a lot of that labor in men's lives, even our own self growth, has come from the women in our lives. Now, that's you know some of that's organic, and you know if you have family members that are women, you know any family that you're in. And they provide sort of an emotional, like a, a healthy emotional template. Gender doesn't matter. Um, but I, I happen to be, you know, grew up with a lot of women. I, to this point, the positive social socialization to the day I die, I will point to a number of the women that raised me. And I, I hold I hold what they've taught me so dear. And I dated a lot of women. And I, I hate to say that, like, you know, there's a lot of growing pains that came with their sort of teaching me. I'm, I'm using air quotes right now, not to say that they didn't teach me, but just like sort of the labor of that that happens. And so I, I say that to say not as a recommendation, especially to men 
listening or to, to men in my life, like, all you got to do is find yourself a good woman. Like, that's such a fucking cliche that we hear all the time. And yes, like, find a good partner, find good people in your life, regardless. Um, and if you are, you know, partnered with a woman, like, I would hope that that person can be emotionally supportive and help with any sense of growth. But if I have to point to an uncomfortable truth or, you know, uh, you know, people can judge that truth culturally, that's one. The other thing, too, is... I think by the model of men that I grew up with, there was a sort of comfort of masculinity that I searched for with men in my life. And that's not always the case. Like, you know, I, I hung out with ruffians and like tough guys and stuff like that. I was never fully fit in, but I think a lot of my longer term committed friendships were with men who had some reservoir of emotional availability. I point that to sort of the models that I did mention in terms of like a matriarchal household, but also the men that I grew up with were were softer in a lot of ways. They were, um, and I, I want to be careful using that word because it can be so negatively, but I, I think just like in terms of like the hard edges of masculinity, uh, there was a warmth and availability there that I think a lot of men don't aren't privy to in the household. And that help pave the way for finding areas of comfort in other male spaces. It didn't always work. I haven't always, I'm still searching in a lot of ways, but being with men who allowed that, you know, allowed that um, sense of self-interrogation and conversation um, has fostered sort of a, a degree of growth. And I'm, beyond that, like, you know, I, I think, the fact is, like, I, I have a sense of privilege, too. Like, I never grew up in a community where I had to put on too much of a mask. I didn't grow up in a gang, um, an area where I had to worry about gangs. Um, you know, the poor kids that got to worry about, like, like, well, fuck, I have to be tough or else blank. I didn't grow up right. queer identifying. Um, I didn't have to put up a mask or, or like, or even embrace my queer identity in a way that... Uh, you know, had to make me navigate things in a certain way. I grew up in an area and in a time roughly uh, in a you know progressive area of the country with a family of some means, you know, and in uh, a pretty progressive family as well, where I was able to be an arty kid. You know, I was able to to express myself or do things in a way that like I wasn't ostracized in the way that other boys were. Not to say that I wasn't. But I think that 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 provided quite a bridge to moving out of adolescence and to later adulthood so that I had sort of a stronger sense of security versus other peers and other people. I think community, I think there's so many things that go into, there's so much policing that happens culturally and there's so much policing with men, so much self-policing. I'm not going to say that because I'm going to be, they're going to think I sound like this. So I'm not going to say it. Um, mm. And when you remove that or when it's, you know, when you have other spaces where you feel safe, um, it does a lot. And I, I relate to a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, I think masculinity and male spaces, multi-gender are scary. They're really scary. I, I go to locker rooms. I'm not necessarily afraid of my safety. It's not that, 
but I still there's there's like a an alarm that goes up versus going into other spaces that are sort of mixed gender or maybe have a different sort of like demographic um, or maybe it's a different age. You're saying going. So, for example, going into a locker room that was all men would feel scary in a specific way. It it shows up. Um, so, for instance, uh, I, I'm trying to think of something recent that has come up in terms of, I mean, I go to the gym and. No, well, first things first, I wasn't a big athletic kid. So like I like just locker rooms. It just makes me feel so bashful. Like I just want to get dressed real quick and blah, blah, blah. And it's mostly just maybe it's tied to like early, early adolescence of like teasing and maybe like towel fights and stuff like that. I'm like, there's probably still a muscle that's like, is that going to erupt all of a sudden? Which obviously like it's very rarely happening in Planet Fitness or at least the Planet Fitness I go to. Um, but I think there's a radar that goes up of there's a like a volume level of guys in the locker room that immediately makes me really defensive. And it has never happened or at least hasn't happened in my adulthood. But just I'm going to try to do this for me in a way that's not like damaging your ears and try to raise my volume. But I'll come to the locker room and dude will be like this. He'll be like talking and blah, blah, trying to like show space and blah, 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 all these things. And by him doing that, I mean, you've been in spaces like that where you know there's like a guy who's like I am here and I am dominating the Mm -hmm. space and even that for myself as a guy like my alarm goes up and there's a protection element of never it's never happened but it's like is something going to go down or what is this guy not going to target me you know in my volume like this oh look at this guy over here hey dude hey you know whatever it is um it's so that's so I mean, I think that's such a, like a juicy tidbit because, of course, I've never been in a men's locker room. Sure. But in a women's locker room, it's so the opposite. It's so serene and quiet. And generally, women whisper to each other in the locker room. So what an what an interesting dynamic. And I and I guess it speaks to if a guy's doing that in a locker room, it's probably because he he feels uh, threatened in some way, I would think. Oh my God. I had the most, that's a good point. I had the most interesting thing happen two or three weeks ago. Same, same environment. I came in and also these spaces are so coded, um, you know, because yeah, anybody could be of any, any, um, uh, sexual identity that comes in there. And I think everybody's sort of navigating in their own way, you know, um, so I think everybody's like very, a lot of times men are just so, and some are some very free with how they're in these spaces, but some are very protected, you know, and um, occasionally you'll see, you'll see men undressing or coming out of the shower and things like that. And uh, you'll see men sort of like avoiding the eye contact or like, I'm not going to look over there, all these sort of things. And you see guys that are just very comfortable with it. Anyway, a few weeks ago I was in there and I was sitting on the bench and I think I was just, you know, finished out my workout and I was putting my shoes on, I was tying up my shoelaces. So where I was sitting, there was a guy that was directly in front of me and his back was to me. He was about eight, eight or 10 feet in front of me and he was standing in front of the mirror. And I, I guess maybe he had just gotten out of the shower or he was finishing his workout. He he was shirtless in front of the mirror. Maybe he was putting on some deodorant or something like that. And I've seen this before where guys will do the the torso inspection a little bit. Like and I do it too. You know, you'll you'll finish and even though like immediate immediate results do not show up as we know at the gym. Like it's not like 
all of a sudden your biceps are two inches bigger. But we all, we all, we all have that vanity of like, come on. And I get it. Like we want to go up there and be like, I did work. It's like a pride moment, proud moment. You know, it's like I did work. Sure. So I'm projecting. I did not have a conversation with this guy. This is my experience that I'm projecting onto him. He's, he's looking in the mirror and he catches my glance. I give him a quick glance and I'm just, you know, there's no judgment. I'm just look, I just looked at the guy for a few seconds and, you know, put my head back down, finished tying my shoelaces. And I just heard him, he touched his belly and I just heard him whisper him to whisper to himself, fat, because he, I assumed because he caught my glance. And I, there was nothing, there was no, I can, I can say right now, like, I don't know what my glance gave him, but it was neutral. Like anything I was trying to convey was neutral to positive. It was just like, you're here in the, in the locker room, like, you know, cool. I, I wasn't doing anything, but I just, I just, that moment was so deflating for him. But, but for me too, I like, I felt poor guy. Like, I don't, I hope what happens is that he leaves here and that he conveys this to somebody. Not that whatever he wants to say, somebody looked at me or just like, hey, I left the gym. I'm feeling so insecure about my body right now and the way it's looking. I hope he has that person to go to. And I'll sort of point back to your question. Like, I don't do that all the time still. Like, I still suffer with whole. You talked about sort of isolating with insecurities. I do the same thing. But I will say sort of the growth and the best I can do is having the spaces where I feel safe enough, especially with men, with fellow men, where I can go, I went to the gym, I feel really funky about my body right now. Nine times out of 10 when I've done that, I'll get like a half hour from a friend of mine going like, oh my, don't even start, man. Do you have any idea how I feel since I became a father? Like, I can barely blah, blah, blah. And like, just these these spaces, this freedom to actually convey these things. So. These these environments, this may be a long way of saying, like, these environments, there's there's codedness that happens in it, but they, they're, they're unsafe in many different ways. Some are, like, actually because somebody's volume, I as a man have, has interpreted as I'm putting a little arm up because this might be an aggressive thing that I have to deal with. And there are also spaces in which they feel unsafe because we have the judgment of other men and we don't have a space to go and talk about that judgment afterwards. Again, not saying that I judged the guy, and I'm not saying that he necessarily thought I was, but they're just different shades, and I'm sure they exist in other gendered spaces, but I can speak as a man who, as somebody who was raised and has grown up as a man, that that has been my my observation as well as my experience uh, as, a, as a man in these spaces. Yeah, you know, um, there is so much pressure on women around uh body image right and and also like not aging all of this stuff and and one thing that i think gets lost in in the conversation with men is that men also struggle with body image mm-hmm. and that's how do i want to say this that in itself is not toxic masculinity but the inability to share and like the inability to talk about it with other men and whatever weird sideways responses happen as a result of that is right. And I'm, I guess maybe I don't know exactly what those are. I guess it could look a lot of different ways, but it, the root thing, you know, where it starts, the seed is men feeling like they can't talk about their insecurities with each other. I think 
the most important thing that I can identify for myself and maybe help other men identify is sitting and identifying shame. Mm. And I think for me, our everything culturally, so there's a dog that is uh, waking up right now when I'm about to make my big point um, and, and shaking <laughs> all over the place. If you hear, if you hear some click. I didn't hear anything. Okay. Um, who's also, he is a lovely confidant, I will say. Uh, having a dog <laughs> does help with self-growth. Um, but I think the, the, the ripple effects that we see culturally are quite often a manifestation of shame. You know, I think to the very small, I won't say small for the person experiencing it, but from the like very micro things, overeating, alcoholism, um, uh, self-harm, uh, uh, isolating and things like that. I can't deal with this thing. I don't know where to go to talk about it. So this is a way that I'm going to make it feel better or have a sense of control to the macro things, you know, uh, femicide, uh, um, just general aggression and violence, um, uh, issues in the workplace, um, obviously um, uh, sexual abuse and things like that. And I, you know, that guy at the gym, I, that's why I sort of like, I, I, I just, I, I, I have such will and want and, and, and sort of hope for, for the, for the guys like that, that, in that moment that I witnessed there, that he has that space to go to because I'm scared for what happens when he doesn't. And it mm. could be something where he goes and eats, you know, a bunch of haagen and feels even worse about himself or he loses money and feels even worse because he lost money because he gambled to like deal, you know, find a way to deal with that shame. I'm talking about vices here, but they don't have to necessarily show up as eating or gambling or drinking um, or the darker elements. But you know, I, I deal with it too. And it's like, it is, if, if there's, if there's anything that we can do to like get ourselves to at least at the first step, just identify, I'm feeling shame right now. That's what that is. Like the wonders that that can do. It sucks. It is the worst to feel shame and it is the worst to sit with it. And I've just been trying to spend this portion of my life figure out how I can do it better for myself and what way can I sit in the world and do whatever little I can, especially with men, to better sit with it. And if they can sit with it, let's let's if that's the first and only step, let's do that. And then from there, there are a number of other things we can do, um, you know, all the way to, you know, stopping things that become ripple effects of not dealing with shame. But um I apologize. I don't fully remember where we were going with this. I said, well, was- I don't know either. I just got so um, wrapped up in shame because I think you're, I think you're spot on. I think we all struggle. I mean, men and women and uh, anyone of any gender identity struggles with shame. And I, I'm, as you were talking, I was sort of like scanning. I was like, do I think that women have an easier time talking about shame than men do? And I think because the, here's, here's my experience anyway, not only do I experience shame, I experience shame about 
the experience of shame. (laughs) (laughs) Like if I experience the shame, then on top of it, I will shame myself for having that experience. And I can't help but wonder if that's part of what happens. Um, Some version of that happens, you know, culturally, but particularly with men. I think if I feel ashamed of something, well, okay, um, here's here's a really good example. When I when I was having this terrible acne out of nowhere, and it was like when I say terrible, I mean like it hurt to put my face on a pillow, like it was really bad, and um, I felt ashamed. I didn't want anyone to look at me, and obviously that was like a physical shame. But the shame beyond the physical shame was no one will want me mm-hmm. if I'm like this. And I won't be loved. Then there was a conversation that happened on top of that conversation about what a bad feminist I was because, and and how vain I was. And so it was like the shame didn't get to just exist on its own. The shame was being shamed. And I wonder like if I think about how that dynamic works in a patriarchy or with, with men, with toxic masculinity, is it like, I'm not allowed, like shame is so vulnerable. It's so, it's like the, it's the opposite of confidence (laughs) (laughs) and like, and like confidence is, I, you know, I think what we all want to exude, but I think particularly men to be able to have power, you have to have confidence. And so if you're feeling shame, it's like, not only do you feel the shame, but I mean, this is me imagining what it might be like but on top of it it's like and i won't be wanted for having the shame so i shouldn't i'm not confident so yeah. i'm ashamed of the shame if that makes sense does that resonate at all oh totally totally it's it's the funkiest feeling it's the funkiest feeling and nobody wants to sit with that um i think you know there's there's probably a, a better way a clinician or or um somebody could speak on this but i think there's there's a at least in my experience, <laughs> this sort of like limited tool belt, as well as the collision of sort of uh, emotional understanding and resources and, and ways in which men are socialized, and then combining with sort of like, here are sort of like the one, two, three punch ways in which you got to sort of like maintain control very quickly. I, <laughs> I year, a few years ago, my uncle passed away and he I went back to Puerto Rico for his funeral I I feel I feel very insecure about my Spanish Mm. and it is a very uncomfortable thing for me when I'm around my family or other peers especially Caribbean peers and anybody Caribbean and I say ah mira habla como un gringo or something Mm. like that like ah well like yeah I grew up in Maryland (laughs) like I didn't speak Spanish growing up like what do you think but anyway, I it's it people don't know this, but that's my Achilles. That's one of my Achilles heels. Anyway, I went to this funeral and I was feeling so shameful because my cousins, everybody was like, you know, they will express themselves pretty well. And I was just like trying to hold on all this stuff, especially the the, the male cousins. So and they were all bonding in Spanish and everything. We went out to eat after the funeral, after the memorial service, and it was mostly the male cousins, myself, um, my brother was there, and we were eating at this, uh, you know, uh, comida criolla in, in this place in San Juan, and they were ordering, and I decided 
to overorder to show them who number one was very Puerto Rican, but also who was still a man, like who who could still throw down. And they were all like, damn, dude, like they were they were showing me respect in a way. You know, like, oh, my God, like you really are eating. And I shouldn't have ordered like, you know, I just can't eat that much amount of food anymore. (laughs) It was such a juvenile way to and I again like Remy like all the things that I've anything any marker that anybody tells you again like all these ways I've grown up with education and sort of like therapy and all these tools and blah 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 that I like I, I still like I am I am of number one I have I'm of a generation but I'm also of a degree of socialization and instead of dealing with that shame it was like what is my one two three punch way of not just not just deal, not dealing with this feeling, but showing myself projecting a sense of who's boss here, mm. you know, you know who's who's can I say and you know you've talked about machismo and stuff like that, like eating eating some steak and and um, and totones and blah 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 and mofongo in one sitting is is one way that can be interpreted of doing that. So I. You know, I I see it in myself. I see it in other men. It's like, and I see it just these terrible, it's just these horrible stories that that we read of just like the darkest parts of humanity. And I don't want to, I, I don't want to sit here and uh, play clinician on the reason why somebody killed their wife or something like these horrible, horrible stories and say like, well, it comes down to shame. Mm-hmm. Um, I I you know I I will say that like all of these things though or even down to like something innocuous like not wanting to feel insecure about my spanish so eating just a tad too much food to somebody murdering themselves like i do think that that it's all connected to a spider web of you know some people label it like the institutional at top is like or the institutional center of a spider web being maybe toxic masculinity but you know perhaps there's you know there are other labels for like the patriarchal internationally just patriarchally how men are favored and sort of the ways that uh you know we break that system down so it's it's a dangerous thing but it's like it's quite a powerful and optimistic thing too if for me it's helped to be like that's what i want to target right that's going to help me for the rest of my life it's going to be something i'm going to have to deal with and maybe i can improve and it's something that i can either through creative work or as well as like holding space, just holding space for other men and saying, I got you, what's going on? And then going like, there's no, the bridge is there, dude. I've, I've, I'm dealing with the same effing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that to me is, is just like being able to pinpoint that part of the spider web has, has to me uh, just opened my eyes and, and has given me a sense of purpose. Thank you so, so, so much for coming on and for everything you've talked about. I just, um, for your vulnerability, for your show, which I, I highly recommend for anyone out there. I just, it's such a great show and so important. The work that you're doing is so important. And thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing about your experience and the work that you do. If people want to get a hold of you or kind of check out your work, how can they find you? Uh, there are a few easy ways. I first thing is I recommend finding other men need help wherever you listen to podcasts, and we're we're online, so you can find us on the website. And you can reach out at other men need help at gmail dot com. But um, other than that, I think the most social place that I am is Instagram. You find me Mark Bagan, um, 
And I'm always happy to hear from people that listen. And, you know, like we said at the beginning of the show, I'm not a clinician, but I do to the best that I can. I'm, I, I do like people reaching out with their experiences and uh, I'm always happy to hear from people. So uh, for what it's worth, uh, say hello or listen. And that's where you can find me. Great. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party or on my personal Insta, Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, hit me up. Also, if you want to join the Patrama Party community, find us on Facebook. It's like a re- it's a really cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Patrama Party and I'll add you. Speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all of the reviews. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, five dollars whatever. I pour myself into this work. I put so much time and energy into it. So if you're able and moved to just go to anchor.fm forward slash the Pachama party and scroll down to the support button. You can also find the support option on Spotify. And until the next time, baby, enjoy the party.